I'd like to echo Gary's uh, sentiments towards the just the excitement of having Damon and Leah uh, with us. I'm I'm just overjoyed with what God has done. Um, and just a note of encouragement to you all, um, for those of you who got to know Josh, the other candidate, I spent some time with him on the phone uh, this week, and he was just blown away by uh, you all's kindness and you all's heart. Uh, he, he was disappointed, uh, but part of the reason he was disappointed is that he, he wanted to be a part of this body. And so I think it's an encouragement uh, to you all and uh, what God is doing here in and among us. Um, if you have been with us here for a while, I guess uh, three or four years, we have been going through the book of Romans. Um, uh, because it's the men's retreat, we've, I decided to take a break from Romans. We'll pick back up in Romans next week in uh, chapter 14. Um, uh, some of the negatives about the men's retreat, as fun as it is, uh, you don't sleep as much as you should. You eat things you probably shouldn't and way too much of it. Uh, and this year, um, the, the only negative to having some of the, a lot of the teenage boys with us is uh, all the basketball that we played, and so I'm quite sore. So if you see me uh, cringing, it's probably not from anything in the text, or it might be guilt or, uh, or just soreness from uh, beating the young kids so bad in basketball. So uh, as, as we uh, look over uh, and we go to 1 Peter, um, uh, part of the reason why I decided to preach in 1 Peter chapter 5 was uh, if you were with us last week as Gary was preaching, uh, uh, Gary used a, a metaphor when talking about um, uh, not getting entangled into sin and uh, how we should... Uh, instead of, and this is interesting for Gary, uh, and he said so himself, but the imagery that he used, which was good, was, was that sometimes we treated sin um, uh, kind of like uh, dog excrement on the sidewalk, where we just, you know, kind of just try to avoid it, to where in our lives, if we truly understand what sin is, that we would treat it more like a lion, uh, something to be avoided. And so, as I was thinking about that and thinking about that in my own life, um, I got to thinking about this passage and then it kind of uh, rolled into a sermon. And so this passage, as Gary read, um, you know, one of the interesting things about this passage is I think sometimes when we look at this passage, we miss, we miss the imagery that's going on in the passage. And so just real briefly, you know, uh, very simply, there, there is this image Peter is laying out for us um, this imagery here, and the imagery in the passage is that there is a flock of sheep, and there's a shepherd, and th- the shepherd is shepherding the sheep, and uh, what we know about sheep and shepherds, and what we get from the whole context of First Peter, is that the shepherd is leading the sheep somewhere. B- but on that journey, and on that path, there are dangers and there are troubles. And the worry, and what we'll look at this morning, is that if the church isn't functioning properly, if the shepherds aren't doing their job, or if the sheep aren't being part of the flock, the danger is that we might wander away 
and be devoured by the evil one. You know, one of the themes of 1 Peter, and we're going to see, I'm going to show you how all this connects just in one minute, but one of the themes of 1 Peter is suffering. And the theme, the context of chapter 5, and I'm going to, again, I'm going to make this connection, is about suffering. And not just a certain kind of suffering, kind of all kinds of suffering. And so what Peter is really writing to this church, and what Peter is telling uh, these Christians, these brothers and sisters, is that suffering has a way. Suffering has a way if you're not on your game, if you don't realize what's going on, if you're not using the resource that God has given you, suffering has the way to lure you away and put you in danger. And so this morning, this morning, I hope by the end this morning that you will see uh, some of the resources that God has given us. Now, I'm going to go over, because uh, it's important uh, to get the context, uh, in the first chapter of First Peter so that you know who this letter is written to. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 1, it says, To those who reside as aliens scattered throughout, and he names uh, uh, five areas here, who are chosen. And so what we see from the outset is that Peter is writing to a group of Christians um, who are living in the world, but they're not of the world. In other words, what's going on is Peter isn't writing to some people who are um, members of another province or members of another city or members of another area but have kind of gone into these areas listed. What he's writing to is members uh, who, who nationally would be part of these communities, but what makes them aliens and strangers is that they're followers of Christ. And what Peter knows... And what's happening, and what always happens, is that as Christians, in a world uh, that is not our home, we are aliens and we are strangers. And what that means is that we will always encounter trials and tribulations and suffering. And so Peter, as he's writing this letter is giving hope and he's giving encouragement. In fact, I'm just going to read verses 3 through 9 in chapter 1. Notice the hope that he's giving these aliens and these strangers. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His great mercy, notice this, has caused us to be born again to a living hope to the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the, from the dead, to obtain an inheritance which is earned. No, no, listen, which is imperishable, undefiled, and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. For you who are, being, who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials." So that the proof of your faith being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in the praise and the glory and the honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And though you have not seen Him, you love Him. And though you do not see Him now, but believe in Him, you greatly rejoice with inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining as an outcome of your faith the salvation 
of your souls. Peter, in the very beginning of this book, is laying out to these strangers, these aliens, these Christians who are in the world. He is saying, there is a hope that is being kept for you. Take heart. Be of good cheer. And so as we get to chapter 5, I want us to see the context here and see, I want you to see the connection. Uh, as we get to chapter 5 and verse 1, there's a therefore, and we have to know what the there is therefore, so it's pointing backwards. And if you looked in chapter 4, uh, I'm just going to read a couple of verses, but in verse 1, Therefore, since Christ has suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same purposes, same purpose, because he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. In verse 4 it says, In all this they are surprised that you do not run with them into the same excesses of dissipation and they malign you. In, in other words, it's talking about the Gentiles and talking about being aliens and being strangers and being uh, different than they are. Then in verse 12, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you which comes upon you for the testing as though some strange thing were happening to you. And then in verse 14, If you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the Spirit of God, of glory and of God rests on you. Then in verse 16, But if anyone suffers as a Christian, he's not to be ashamed, but is to glorify God in this name. And then in verse 19, Therefore, those also who suffer according to the will of God, shall entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. And then we get this, therefore. So based on all this, based on all this, this whole idea that you are going to be different from the world, based on this whole idea that you're going to suffer, that there are going to be fiery trials, that there's going to be suffering, that there could be persecution from outside and from within, Based on all this, he's going to exhort the church. And here's what he does in his exhortation of the church. And we're going to notice that there are uh, three, um, I don't want to say groups, two groups and one thing that are going to stick out and we're going to follow this uh, theme throughout. That We're going to see that there are shepherds, we're going to see that there's a flock and we're going to see that there's a lion. And so my goal this morning, there, if you look at these passages and if you, uh, uh, if you were to go to some of your favorite pastors on the internet, uh, they probably spend, depending upon who you listen to, you know, five, six, seven weeks in this passage because it's so ripe for so many things. We could just talk about elders this morning. We could just talk about anxiety this morning. We could just talk about all this. But we're going to back up and take a bigger view. Um, and so we're going to roll through some things. But I want you to see, I want you to see what God has given us so that we can navigate our way through this world and make it to the end, no matter what the suffering or no matter what the cost may be. So the first thing I want you to see is that there are shepherds. And notice that I am putting an S at the end of the word shepherd to make it plural. (laughs) Look in verse 5. I exhort the elders among you as your fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ and partaker also of the glory that is to be revealed. Now, if you 
if we were to do a study this morning just on elders, when you looked throughout the New Testament, you would see that it was the plan of God for the church for there to be a multiple of elders in the church leading and guiding and shepherding the church. We see it from the very beginning in the book of Acts that as they went around and established churches, they established elders. And we see in First and Second Timothy, when we're talking about elders, we're talking about elders plural. And so as he's talking here, one of the groups of shepherds is the elders among you. Now it's also interesting, the word elder, and there's another word here for overseer that's used interchangeably here in this text. And so he's talking about that you, as a church, that there, have, there should have been elders put over you that are shepherding you. Tells him in verse 2, shepherd the flock of God among you. So one of the things we see right off the bat is that one of the things that God has given the church to help us endure suffering, to help us navigate our way through the world, to help us to make it home to that inheritance that God has laid aside for us, that one of the things that God has given the church as a blessing is elders. And so I want to give a special note to two groups here. One, to the elders among us who who serve as elders in our context, I, I want you to listen to what he says that we are to do and how we are to do our job in verses 2 and 3. There's a not and then there's a but. So it says, shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but voluntarily, according to the will of God. Not for sordid gain, but with eagerness. Nor yet as lording it over those allotted to your charge, but proving to be examples to the flock. Brothers, elders among us, this is our call, and we talk about this frequently in church. One of the things that I want you to know that one of the joys I have of being here is serving with men who meet these qualifications, who love this body. It's not a group of business people that are looking over the business of the church. It's not a CEO or a, uh, or a, uh, a group model of just business. These are groups of men. These, this is a group of men who love you and are caring for you. And they want to see you make it. And so, you know, we take the role of elder here very seriously and so note to the flock to the body this is why it's so important when we put out nominations for elder that you take this seriously because this is a vital role and function within the church if you really understand this text that Peter is telling us that the role of the elder and overseer is to help to get you to glory and that's one of the gifts that God has given you you will take these nominations Seriously. And I feel like you have done a good job with that. And so, elders, you know, as we look at the qualifications, they're to be of good character, they're to be, be able to teach, they need to be able to lead, to guide, to counsel, to love, to protect. One of the joys that we have in the elder room is to, is to pray for you all. And to have discussions about, hey, this is going on in so-and-so's life, how can we... 
How can we come alongside? How can we make sure that they endure this tough time? And again, we could talk all day here, and we could park here, and it's worthy of a sermon, but for the sake of time, I want to go through. So as Peter is talking about shepherds and the elders among you, notice he also talks about two other elders. The one is in verse 1. Did you pick up on this? I exhort to the elders among you as your fellow elder. That Peter, as an apostle, viewed himself as a fellow elder, as a fellow shepherd. Now, do you remember what happened when the risen Lord met Peter? Peter had betrayed Jesus, and in John chapter 21... You don't have to turn here. I'll read it for you. And you'll remember this. It says, So when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And he said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, Tend my lambs. And he said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, Shepherd my sheep. And he said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved. He said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, tend my sheep. So it's no wonder that when Peter gets to this part of his letter, that what he is exhorting, and he's including himself in this, is he is saying that God has set me aside as an apostle to be a shepherd to tend to the sheep. And this is the way that I love the body. And so part of, part of what we have going on here with the apostles is that we have their letters of, of how we get nourishment and food and how we are protected is by the words that these men wrote in the Bible to help us in this journey. Now, I want you to notice that that's not all. We have the elders among you, the fellow elder, and then look down in verse 4. And when the chief shepherd appears, the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. And so one of the implications here as elders among you is that one of our goals is to tell you as a flock Follow us as we follow Him. And if we're not following Him, you shouldn't follow us because there is a chief elder, chief shepherd. And this chief shepherd gave his life for the sheep. And so the only way to be in this flock in the first place is if you have put your faith and trust in Jesus, the great shepherd who gave his life for the sheep was risen from the grave and who now reigns and is the great shepherd. And notice, notice it says, and when the great shepherd appears. And here's the imagery that has just filled my heart as I've been thinking about and studying and reading over this text. is this imagery of um, shepherds, elders leading this flock that we're doing that accordance to the apostles' teaching. And then, oh, the day. (laughs) 
Oh, the day. And I think about wandering through the dangers and the toils and trusting and going. And all of a sudden, the chief shepherd appears. And he takes us home to those pastures where there will be no more suffering, no more dying, and where we will no longer be aliens and strangers, but we will reside in the country that we were being fit for. Oh, the day that that great shepherd would appear. Again, we could linger here, but I want to continue on through this passage because not only is there, are there shepherds, but notice the second thing, and it's, you're going to say, duh, Lewis, but uh, the other part of the in- imagery is that there is a flock. There is a flock, and we see this throughout the text. And so if you are a believer, you are part of the flock. And Peter here is telling us how the flock should function. And you should know, and if you haven't, then I would say if you went home today and watched the animal planet, one of the things that you will find out is what happens to a sheep that doesn't stay in the flock. Have you ever watched this? Yes, my man has watched this. <laughs> the lion is waiting. He is sitting there. And do you, do you notice when you watch these shows what happens? The lion doesn't just wander into the middle of a flock where there's a shepherd. What happens is the lion waits and he observes and he sees one of the lambs or whatever he is preying on and this They get separated from the flock and the lion is in and out and devours that sheep or whatever he is preying on. And so I think it's important that we have that imagery in mind as we talk about the flock and how we are supposed to function as the flock. And one of the things that I want you to notice, and this is vitally important to me, is that not only if you're a Christian are you a part of the flock universal, the universal church, but look in verse 2. Shepherd the flock of God, and what are the next two words? Among you. And so the idea here, what Peter is telling us, is that you have shepherds and they have a flock, if you will, a local church. This is a great argument for the existence of a local church. And so you should be a part of a local church if you are one of his sheep. Because Christians in fellowship can endure hardships and suffering. And we were meant to do that as a community together. And if you ask how, then you have been reading my notes, which is good. And in verse 5, Peter begins to tell us. He says, You younger men, likewise, be subject to your elders, and all of you clothe yourselves with humility towards one another, for God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Now, don't get tripped up over these words, uh, younger men, like this is an exhortation just to younger men. This is really tricky, but I think if you balance out the whole phrase, younger men, and then notice later on, and all of you, It's very clear that he's encompassing everyone. There's a lot of debates about what is meant younger men in the beginning of verse 5. But for our time today, I think it's crystal clear that he is saying to all of you, to all of the flock, notice the first thing that he says, be subject to your elders, following them, trusting them, 
knowing that they are caring for you, knowing that, that God has put an authority over you, noting that they have a direction that they are going, and it is good. If you are someone who is constantly rebelling against authority structures, and it means that you have a hard time being a part of a local body and under leadership, all I want you to know is you are putting yourself at danger. You are putting yourself at a danger that you might be carried away because God never intended God never intended for you to go about this alone. The second thing that I want you to see of how the flock is to operate is that it says clothe yourself with humility. And there's two ways in this text it talks about humility. The first that we see in verse 5 is this, clothe yourself with humility towards one another. And next week we're going to talk a little bit more about this. But notice he says, be humble. Clothe yourself with humility toward one another. That the way that the flock is supposed to operate in order to endure, in order to safely make it to the promised land, is that we are supposed to clothe ourselves with humility among one another. And what that means is that we are to give preference to the other. That we are to operate in a lowly fashion, looking out for, caring for the needs of the other above ourself. That we are encouraging one another on this journey. That we're fighting with one another as we are alien, with one another against the world, not fighting with one another. That's what I meant. And so the mark of a flock is humility towards one another. Not only humility towards one another, but the second thing that we see in verse 6, notice this, therefore humble yourself under the mighty hand of God that He may exalt you at the proper time. Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God that He may exalt you at the proper time couple of things I want you to see here. If we truly understand who God is, or if we're seeing God as rightly as we can, then this whole phrase, the mighty hand of God, provides great comfort. There is no one mightier the only response under a God like our God is to humble ourselves because we know that His hand is mighty. And, and look, look at the other two qualifiers here. It says, He might exalt you. No. It says, He will exalt you. So many times in the Christian life, as we are following Christ, as we're following God, we want to do things our way. We, we resist humbling ourselves. And how foolish is this? Because the promises we're given in God's Word is that if we humble ourselves under God's mighty hand, He will exalt us. He will get us there. And I think another hard thing for us as believers is this second 
phrase that qualifies this. Did you catch it? At the proper time. Therefore, humble yourself under the mighty hand of God that He may exalt you at the proper time. So it's on God's timeline, in God's timing. Now, none of you struggle with when you are uh, facing trials, temptations, fiery ordeals, or suffering, uh, tell God what His timeline should be, do we? (laughs) Isn't this one of our struggles as part of the flock? What What this communicates to us that at the right time is that if God has you in this place where there are trials and temptations and suffering, He is going to take care of you and that there is purpose in it. That we may be called to sit in this for a little while. That God is up to something in the trials and in the suffering. And so we are to humble ourselves. We are to recognize that God is way better than we are, that He knows better than we are, He is stronger than we are, He sees more than we see, and that He loves us and cares for us, and He will get us home. The other interesting thing here, uh, and I think sometimes this really famous verse is taken out of context a little bit, and that is verse 7. And I think what verse 7 describes is how we humble ourselves. It says, casting all your anxiety on Him because He cares for you. Now, some translations will say, cast all your cares upon Him for He cares for you. And that's the Bible verse we memorize. But actually, in the Greek, it's a participle. And so it should say, casting all your... So we humble ourselves by casting our cares upon Him. And I don't know if you've ever thought about that that's the way we are to humble ourselves before our God is by casting our anxiety on Him. How do you handle anxiety? It's interesting, the Greek word for anxiety, um, the root of that is to divide. And I think what happens to us a lot of times is that trouble or something comes and we begin to worry and we have a divided mind. And when we are anxious, when we are bringing anxiety, when we are not casting our cares upon the Lord, one of the things we're doing is that we're focusing on the event and worrying about it and fretting over it. And the problem is, no good comes out of that. The the example I love to use with this is that um, uh, many years ago... uh, Uh, I was learning how to mountain bike and learning how to kayak when I was in college. And I got myself in a lot of trouble kayaking because uh, what would happen is you'd be floating down, whitewater kayaking, you'd be floating down a, well, or going fast down a river. And there would be something coming up and you could hear it that you knew, oh, I don't want to go in there. And these rapids would have names, and they were never like great names, you know, it's like gorilla or scratch your face off or whatever. And so the friends of mine who I was kayaking with would be like, hey, this, is, this next rapid is sure death. Um, don't go in there. 
So what happens if you become anxious and you begin to worry, what I would do is I would focus, oh no, don't go there, don't go there, don't go there, I'm supposed to go over here. But one of the things you learn, whether mountain biking or kayaking, is that you go where you're looking. And so one of the hardest things that I had to overcome in those two sports was I had to focus on where I wanted to go. And if I focused on where I wanted to go, my boat or my bike would go there versus other places. Same thing with mountain biking. My friends would take me on these crazy things to where you, this really small path, and if you go this way, it's a long way down. And if you are looking this way, you're going to go that way, right, Casey? I took her uh, mountain biking her first time, and she kept hitting trees. And it didn't end well for me when I tried to give her this lesson. Don't look at the tree and you won't hit it. (laughs) But it's the same way in our spiritual life. And that's what this verse is telling us. That the way we humble ourselves is by not trying to do it ourselves. But we cast our cares upon God because He cares for us. And so our focus and our aim has to be on this almighty God who has this almighty hand and we have to trust and know that he cares for us so we take our eyes off of the struggle and we focus our gaze on him and we constantly give it to him and we trust what he says about it versus what the world tells us about that struggle psalm 23 another uh, image in the bible about us being sheep with the shepherd verse 4 Even though I walk through the valley of shadow of death, I fear no evil, for you are with me. Oh, brother and sister, this is the way that sheep, us, the flock of God, humble ourselves is by knowing that we fear no evil because God is with us and we fix our gaze there. Thirdly, Thirdly, in this text, we see in verse 8 that there is a lion. Verse 8, be of sober spirit, be on alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. I think, sadly, the state of the church that we have uh, tried to reason and rationalize away uh, this concept that the devil is alive and well and is prowling around in this world. So often we, as even Christians and believers, and as the church, we rationalize this away and that we look at um, other things uh, as being the source of our suffering and the source of things that are going on in our life. And a lot of times we miss this fact that there is an evil one that is alive and well that is seeking to devour us. I want you to, to know this enemy. The, 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 our scripture today tells us to know this enemy. Be sober. Be on alert. And, and I, want you to, I want to just think about the words that uh, our text uses here. First, it says that our adversary. The word here in the Greek is, is really an opponent in a lawsuit. So someone who is set up against us, who is testifying against us. Our adversary, the devil. This comes from the, the Hebrew word, the, the usage of the word devil in, uh, in Hebrew, and it means deceiver or the one 
who slanders. And notice it says that he is prowling. Satan, our adversary, is prowling. He's on a mission. He's seeking. He's looking. He's lurking. He's hunting. He's pursuing. The next word is roaring. Interestingly enough, and I don't know a whole lot about lions, and probably some of you know a lot more about lions than I do, but one of the things when a lion is hunting, that oftentimes a lion will roar in order to separate and scatter the herd so that he can then pick one of the herd off. And notice that our text says that Satan is roaring, that his goal is to cause fear. And if he can cause fear in the life of a believer, he can lure us into his trappings and try to pick us off because his goal, in the last word here, his goal is to devour us. And this is literally the picture of an animal gulping food down. You picture an alligator or an anaconda literally just devouring, gulping the food down. It's the same idea that we get in the book of Jonah with the the great fish devouring, gulping down its prey. This world, this devil is on the prowl and is loose. But brothers and sisters, take heart. This beast is on a leash, as many pastors like to say. Because of the work of Christ on a cross, this beast has been defeated. And so, for a little while, as we read earlier, Satan and his minions are prowling around and hunting. But if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, take heart and know that God has already defeated this foe. And so there is no reason to be anxious. There is no reason to take your eyes off of the Lord. There is every reason to cast our care upon Him and to put ourselves into the care of the shepherds that He has put over us, knowing that the journey may be tough, the journey may have heartache, the journey may at times be scary, but knowing that God will ultimately win tells us to be sober and to be alert. I think many times in the Christian life, the lurings and trappings of this world have us intoxicated to where we're loving the world, we're drunk off the things of the world, and we get lured away, and then all of a sudden we are in a vulnerable position. And so brothers and sisters, Peter is telling us, don't be this way. And then in verse 9 and 10, but resist Him. Firm in your faith. And and get this. Knowing the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in this world. I love this verse. And I love to tell people it's important that we talk about the things that God is doing in our life, what God is bringing us through, and what God has brought us through, because over and over throughout the Bible, it tells us that one of the reasons we are to meet together as believers is to encourage one another, and one of the ways that we're encouraged is when we see the triumphs of faith in each other's life. 
So we need to be doing this. The Bible commands this. It's one of the weapons that He gives us. And then in verse 10. After you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who called you to His eternal glory in Christ, will Himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Now I want to end with just a, uh, maybe a little bit of an odd thing. Um, and uh, to, to, to end with, just to kind of show you practically how some of this self stuff plays itself out. One of the things that happens a lot when, I, when I'm meeting with someone or counseling with someone, um, one of the phrases that I'll use quite a bit, and, and sometimes it shocks people, but sometimes people will say things to me and I'll just tell them, hey, that's satanic. Look at me like, you calling me the devil? <laughs> or I'll say, that's demonic. And what I mean is, if we know God's word, we begin to pick up on messages that people believe or that people are hearing or that they have heard their whole lives that is not from God but is from from the evil one that is trying to influence them negatively. And you say, well, Lewis, what in the world are you talking about? And it's things like this. If, if somebody comes in to see me and they say, and I'm careful with who and when and this sort of thing and have to explain myself a lot. But if I hear somebody coming in saying, you know, Lewis, I just, I, you know, God has no purpose for me. I'm, I'm just useless you know, I just, I just think I'm going to stop going to church and stay home. And it's just easier to pull the covers up and not come out. A lot of times I will say, brother, sister, that's demonic. That is the evil one trying to lure you away from what God has designed and what God has given you to help you endure. And one of the things I think we have to be better at than what we are, and I know I say this a lot, but we've got to begin to know where some of these voices come from and battle it with the Word of God. Brother and sister, God has given us resources, and some of the ones we have seen in this text is that He's given us elders, He's given us brothers and sisters, and He's given us victory. And my prayer, that as we travel with each other through the narrows of life, through the, the good and the bad, on our journey home, my prayer is that we would gain confidence and we would be who God is creating us to be and that we will one day together see the great shepherd and rejoice greatly. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, we um, get frustrated because the structures you have given us, although they are designed by you, don't function perfectly because we are left to live this out. The flock does not function like it's supposed to. There's always dysfunction within the flock. God, the elders don't shepherd like they are supposed to. There's always dysfunction amongst the shepherds. 
But God, you have given us these structures. You have given us these gifts. God, help us to rejoice in them. Help us to depend upon them. God, help us to trust in them. All this is only possible through your son Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen.